Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. The 4th of July is always bittersweet for pastors. We love our country, but we lose half our congregation for a Sunday. So it has always been and evermore shall be. Of course, on this 4th of July, we take time to consider our country that we dearly love. And this particular 4th brings with, brings with it thankfulness along with an element of profound sadness. We have all watched over this past year in spectacular fashion our country embracing worldviews and sin that Scripture says are a reproach to any people. But I want to encourage those gathered here this morning and watching online as our culture and our world continue their march toward what seems to be uncharted territory, as it seems every day we are confronted with new ways of trampling the gospel underfoot, and as we witness the creation, shake their fist at the Creator. This has been a time of tremendous blessing and growth for the church. While our hearts break to watch the effect that open sin has upon a culture, and what happens when the Lord sovereignly removes the common grace of shame from a nation. It gives us great cause to rejoice and take comfort. Saints, it is far easier to see the lines of demarcation, to see the battle lines of truth when the world chooses to spill its sin in such bold colors. The mask is well and truly off. In our decades of cultural Christianity that even now is gasping its last breath, has allowed many in the church to color in all different shades of gray, to hide out, to equivocate, to placate, to blend in. This cannot be anymore. It cannot be. And in an ironic twist, it is the world that is forcing the church to confess what it believes, to stand up. Isn't that amazing? It is forcing believers to put some skin in the game. It is ironically the world and the word, both reminding us that we are not of the world that we are called out of this world, that we are called to be set aside, to be set aside, to be set apart as the ecclesia, as the called out ones. That's what it means to be the church. This has certainly been a refining year for the church in America. And we know, as we have preached many times from this pulpit, that what God is doing today in the world, he is doing for the eternal good of his bride. The orchestration of events, the experiences of pain and of suffering, of loss, which we've seen much of this year, are working together in sovereign beauty for the sanctification of his people on our way to glorification. So be encouraged this 4th of July. This great experiment known as the United States has been afforded tremendous blessings for followers of Christ in our history. And now as that veil of societal and governmental protection is removed, more and more every day, we're reminded that this is not our home. We are first citizens of heaven. If you are of Christ, if you are in Christ, your passport says celestial city. And we love our country, but we love our Savior even more. Amen? Amen. Well, what a time it's been in Mark 5. We'll be completing this chapter today with part 3 of death and disease running headlong into the divine. And this three-part series has come on the heels of this great theme of Mark's gospel to demonstrate conclusively that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Not so much by what Jesus says, but by what he does. And the last two chapters alone have been a tour de force of this very aim. 
We saw divine power over nature as Jesus calmed the sea, power over the demonic as he cast legion into the herd of swine, and power over disease as we saw last week with the woman and the issue of blood. And finally today, death itself must bend the knee. Recall that this series was compromised, comprised of one of Mark's favorite literary techniques, that of the Markin sandwich. And we have the telling of Jairus' daughter and her raising sandwiched right in between the telling of this miracle. And we're interrupted by the woman and the hemorrhage of blood. The only thing that these two had in common was a desperate faith that Jesus was their last hope. Now, I wish I could have spent much more time on this woman. She is truly a series unto herself. But we were blessed and convicted to watch last week as this woman who was perpetually and ceremonially unclean because of her issue of blood, who was separated from all she had known. She was childless. She could not even reside in her own home because of her condition. She had not been able to fellowship in the synagogue. She had not known the touch of another human for 12 years. We watched as she came in desperate faith, willing to break every taboo, to crawl on her knees through the press of people and to grab hold of the tassel of Jesus's robe. Now, her faith was incomplete. Her knowledge of Jesus was riddled with superstition and wrong thinking, meaning her doctrine was not correct. But the object of her faith was correct. Her faith in Christ, and this is a faith that Jesus responds to. We're reminded that, that, is, this is, that it's not the sincerity of faith that makes it true. Because we can be sincerely wrong. Nor is it the intensity of our faith that makes it true. Because we can be intensely wrong. No, it is the object of our faith that determines its truth. Os Guinness famously said, quote, The Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it's true. Close quote. We watched with amazement as this woman pressed through against all odds through thousands of people in the pulsing of the people to lay hold of the object of her faith. And we saw demonstrated in this woman that our faith is not one of mere profession. It is one of possession. Millions profess Christ in America, but how many possess him? Does our own conversion story have a time where we came in desperate need to grab the cloak of our Savior? Not merely professing him, but do we possess him with the highest passion and the greatest determination like this woman? Reaching out with the hand of faith, however imperfect, however stained, she laid hold of the object of her faith. And as she did, Jesus feels the great exchange occurring, doesn't he? He knows, verse 30, that power had gone out of him, which was explained to us in Isaiah 53, showing us our suffering servant, telling us what he did and what he felt. What does Isaiah say? However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried, Isaiah writes of this coming Messiah. Jesus said, I will take your disease and your infirmity and your uncleanness upon myself. I will take that and I will give you my wholeness. I'll give you my health and my purity. Be clean. That's what he felt. Leave him. And we, in fact, truly witnessed a small microcosm of substitutionary atonement, a foretaste of what was to come. Jesus taking our infirmities upon himself, the weight of sin upon himself, giving himself as a substitute for us, 
standing in our place where we should have stood. And she knows that her state is desperate. She had spent all that she had and she only grew worse. Her life was one of a leper. And if she were to have stayed navel-gazing and looking at herself in pity, that her situation was hopeless, this view would never change. But she turns her gaze off of herself and onto the object of her faith. Martin Luther said, quote, When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. Desperation grabbed the tassel. And immediately her condition was healed. But more than that, Jesus says that she has been, verse 34, saved. Remember our Greek word, sozo, meaning made whole, made new, salvation. Jesus drove right past her physical healing to what mattered most. He drives past the physical and he points right to the eternal. Yes, your body has been made well, but sozo, you have been saved. You have been given new life. Such a beautiful scene. It was beautiful. And we were so caught up in this captivating scene last week that we almost forgot that standing by this entire time has been poor Jairus. We won't put it up on the slide, but let us read the opening verses from three weeks ago that introduced us to this desperate father. Back at verse 21, Mark 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come that by coming you may lay your hands on her so that she will be saved and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So here we've been introduced to a father, a father that, as best we can tell, may have spent up to two days sitting on this shoreline earlier in chapter four, waiting for Jesus to return from the other side. And what do we know about him? Well, we know an awful lot just by his title, that he was a synagogue official. And recall that this was a position that was not a scribe or a Pharisee. He was not part of the teaching elite, but he was a highly respected member of the synagogue. He was an administrator. He was a caretaker. He watched over the scrolls and the facilities. They would arrange schedules, handle much of the day-to-day. But why does Mark give us the title? Why do we need to know who this man is? Why not just tell us it was a man? Well, as we said in part one of this series, you did not get to this position without being highly loved and highly respected in the community. And most importantly, by being a fixture of the religious establishment. You did not become a a synagogue official without being one of the boys. And who were the boys? Who ran the religious establishment? Who determined the sway of the synagogue? Now we're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Now we need to make this connection. If Jairus is a synagogue official, while he's not a scholar himself, he is joined at the hip with the religious establishment. He is in lockstep with the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you're Jairus, if you are part of the religious establishment, listen to this, your entire life revolves around this position. Where you sat at the restaurant, your honor in the marketplace, your livelihood, everything was wrapped up and defined by this association. 
So why does Lanesville 2021 need to know who he is? Because Jairus is risking everything to be here. The Pharisees, the scribes, the ones who gave him this respected position were already plotting the death of Jesus. Jairus is going off the reservation, but the effectual calling from the shepherd cannot be ignored. The sheep hear his voice. They know the voice of the shepherd. And as there's only one main synagogue in Capernaum, as an official, Jairus had multiple opportunities to witness Jesus, not only teaching and preaching, but casting out demons right in their midst. Jairus knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was his only hope. Matthew's account of this scene says that Jairus bowed down in worship. And we saw back in verse 23, the curtain being pulled back on what kind of faith Jairus possessed. What kind of faith is it that catches the attention of Jesus in the midst of a crowd of thousands that were all yelling and clamoring for Jesus? Verse 23, you'll see in your Bibles, Jairus says, you may lay your hands on her so that she will be saved and live. Or as the NASB says, get well and live. What Jairus asks for here is astounding. He's not just saying, please come make my daughter feel better. First, he says, here comes that word again, sozo, to make her well, to completely restore her body and soul, impart your life to her, let her be a partaker of you. Jairus goes on, moving straight past Jesus' ability to merely make her better, but that she might live, meaning that you can raise her from the dead. That was the purview of Messiah. This would be a messianic miracle, the faith of Jairus. While still mixed with superstition that, that Jesus actually needed to come and touch her to heal her, right? Which, of course, Jesus didn't. His faith is such that even in the midst of his desperation... Jairus knows what he knows. He can make his daughter whole and he can even raise her. That's an uncommon faith. That's a gift. Jairus coming to this knowledge, Jairus coming to this place of faith did not come from some inner holy longing that he discovered one day within himself. That is folly. He was being pursued by the master and Jesus will have his man every time. No exception. Those whom Jesus calls will come and all who are called, who are given to Jesus by the father are raised on the last day. What a glorious consolation of security. Jesus has purposed to go with Jairus to his home. That is where we find ourselves in our text this morning. How's that for an introduction? So with that, let's begin. Mark 5, 35 through 43. Mark 5, 35 through 43. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly crying and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and crying? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. 
But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl stood up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that some food should be given to her to eat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded of such glorious truths in this text today. The attributes of who you are. All powerful, yet all compassionate. Unflappable in the face of pressing crowds of death and of mourning. Yet you are willing to enter in to the suffering of this family. More than anything, Lord, we want to know Jesus better from this text. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would walk with us as we learn to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, oftentimes one of the most difficult aspects of preaching through narratives like the Gospels and for expository listeners such as yourselves in narrative is appreciating the reactions and the emotions of the players in the scene. It's easy sometimes to be aloof or to float above the scene without grasping the plight of these folks who were people just like us. And as we wrap up this three-part series, this final scene is no exception to that danger, especially when it comes to this dear father, Jairus. And to set the scene for you, just imagine if you would walking, say, through a mall with your children. And suddenly one of them collapses and in a panic, you look around and you see a paramedic sitting over in the food court eating lunch. And you run to him in desperation. You know that this man's your only hope. And you tell him what happened. You point to your child across the way. The paramedic, of course, agrees to help. He, he sets down his sandwich. He grabs his kid and begins making his way to your child. Now, just imagine someone on the way stops the paramedic and is bleeding profusely from their head. It looks bad, but it's not life-threatening. But instead of brushing this man aside, the paramedic stops. He gets out his kit, and he begins to bandage this person up. Put yourself in the shoes of that parent in that moment. What emotions are you experiencing? What do you want to say? What do you want to shout? That has been Jairus' world this entire time as the woman interrupts Jesus' march. Jairus's home. When Jesus stopped in verse 30 and he says, who touched me? And if I'm Jairus, I'm shouting, who touched you? Who cares? My child is dying right over there. There's no evidence that Jairus says anything, though it certainly helps to explain the disciples reaction in verse 31, doesn't it? But we dare not float above this story. We must be in the trenches to appreciate Jairus, to witness his faith. So with that, let's begin with our text, verse 35, Mark 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? While he was still speaking, who's speaking to who? Well, this is Jesus still speaking to the woman he had healed. Mark is making a deliberate connection here. While Jesus has been held up with this woman, this delay, the child has died. The delay was deadly. 
What was just a difficult and a tragic situation had just passed over into the realm of the impossible. One is immediately drawn in story similarity to Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Recall John 11. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. We don't need to surmise about why Jesus stayed two more days, why he delayed, why he did not come rushing to Lazarus. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. That's our compass rose. Here's our orientation for it all. This scene today, Jesus stopping to tend to the woman, makes no sense in priority unless the sovereignty of God is our framework and our lens through which we walk through life. The framework through which we process and experience pain. When our priority seems to be much different than God's and our timeline doesn't match His. And just as a quick reminder, you'll recall a few months ago, we talked about the specific reason why Jesus delayed going to Lazarus. G Jewish folklore taught that the spirit of a person hovered over the deceased body for four days after death. So Jesus purposely waited beyond that time frame to eliminate any objection that this was somehow less of a miracle. Recall it was known as a messianic miracle, a miracle only Messiah could perform. His timing is perfect. And he has done all things well, however painful in the moment. We understand that all he does is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it and that he is working this for our eternal good. As we often say at HHBC, it is for our good and for his glory. And that is exactly what we see here today. So back to our text. Who comes on the scene? They came from the house of the synagogue official. And we don't know exactly who these people are, but we do know something of their understanding of Jesus, that it's faulty. In the moment where the most crushing news comes to Jairus's ear, he not only needs to absorb this blow, but he has his faith attacked as well. Don't the attacks come when we're weakest? Those who came brought an ill report with ill advice. They had correct analysis, but a wrong response. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? In their mind, a line had been crossed. To raise someone from the dead is next level. It's beyond help. This word for trouble means to harass or to weary, to annoy, to bother. Don't do it. What's the point? It's done. They don't know who Jesus is. He isn't Lord. He isn't Messiah. He isn't the Almighty that's come down in human flesh. What did they call him? Just a teacher. Nothing new under the sun, saints. How does Jesus respond to this interruption? What do we see? Verse 36. Verse 36. But Jesus overhearing what had been spoken. Stop there. Stop there. If you haven't figured it out yet, if we have a single sermon where we don't find the English failing us in favor of the Greek, it is a poor sermon. And here we have found it. It says that Jesus overheard what had been spoken. This misses the intent. Our word here is parakouine. 
The semantic range here means to pay attention to, to ignore, to refuse to listen, or to discount the truth of something. Jesus did not just overhear it. This is telling us Jesus plowed right past it. He completely ignored it. He treated the statement as false. Parakuai. Jesus literally pays them no mind. And he focuses right onto Jairus. And what does he say? Do not be afraid. Only believe. Now here Jesus' exhortation made me stop. It made me stop. The first part didn't seem quite fitting. Do not be afraid. Isn't that curious? Fear is not what would come to my mind first. Despair, yes. Sorrow and sadness, yes, yes. But fear. What is Jesus doing here? Who walks into a funeral and exhorts the grieving parents to not be afraid? It didn't click. I poured over 20 commentaries. Nobody helped. Till I thought this man was grieving. And I was brought back to biblical counseling. Jesus is the ultimate biblical counselor. He goes for the root. The heart of the matter is what? A matter of the heart. Jesus telling Jairus not to fear, do not be afraid, I believe is getting to the root and tells us something about how Jairus is responding inside his heart to this event with Jesus and to this delay with this woman. Go back to the mall where your child is in perilous straits, as the paramedic has stopped to bandage the wound of another. What emotion would fill you as that paramedic has stopped to help another person and someone runs over and tells you, no need for the paramedic to come, your child has died. I know what emotion would fill me. Anger. Anger. And as any biblical counselor will tell you, the root of anger is fear. It's fear. Show me an angry person and I will show you a fearful person. The anger is a manifestation of something they fear. Here I believe Jesus is going for the root with Jairus. Do not be angry. Do not fear. Where fear does not exist, unholy anger will not exist. One gives birth to the other. And as I looked at this exhortation from Jesus to Jairus, I saw yet another wonderful principle of biblical counseling, that of putting off and putting on. These are two sides of the same coin. Both are necessary. We put off the old man. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in our text, first is the put off. Put off fear. Put off anger. And now in the same stroke, what does he say? Put on belief. Put on belief. Belief here is given in the present tense, meaning keep on believing. The exercise of belief is not a flu shot. It's not one and done. You have believed, present tense, now keep on believing. We will see that Jairus' continued faith will not be misplaced. He did not listen to the naysayers. He did not listen to those who did not know Jesus or what he was capable of. Jesus has counseled Jairus. In his grief, in his despair. And almost immediately we begin to see Jesus' reasonings for his delay. His purposes in this and his sovereignty. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Well, this is great. This is the first time in scripture we see Jesus separate out his inner three. 
Peter, James, and John. And this will be a theme throughout the Gospels, but here's our first time. So we have to ask, why did Jesus do this? Are these three more valuable than the other nine? Did Jesus see more potential in these three? Was this favoritism? No, it was none of those things. There's none of those things. Jesus is pouring into these three as a vessel and as a conduit to bring back to the other nine. Impart to these three intimately and let them convey it back. You can't have the same intimacy with 12. Three seems to be a good number. This demonstrates for us that we need to be in discipling relationships. We need to be in accountability relationships. Who is speaking into our lives? Who are we sharing with? Who's pushing back on us and challenging us? There are no islands in Christianity. If you're walking alone, you are just waiting to be devoured. If you've fallen for the strong, independent American routine, that is a recipe for a shipwrecked faith. If you don't have someone, get someone. Back to our text. Jesus has taken Jairus now in his three-count inner circle, and they're about to come upon a funeral already in progress. Verse 38. Verse 38. And they came to the house of the synagogue officials, official, and he saw a commotion and the people loudly crying and wailing. Well, a few things to note. One, most will notice straight away is that funerals in the Middle East during this time period are not like our funerals today in the West. They could not be more different. Yes, this was a chaotic scene, but it, it's not chaos in an uncontrolled sense. This was all very choreographed. Jewish funerals had a few unique aspects to them, some of which Mark is telling us about. The first is you're, see, you're seeing right here, and that's the wailing. Now, not only would this be family members, but everyone, even down to the poorest person, was required to have professional mourners and flute players at their funeral. These were the professionals. They had mourning down to a science. And if you've ever heard it, it's very ominous sounding. And it's meant to be kind of off harmony with the flute notes that are being played. The professionals kind of got the wailing started. They worked up the mood, so to speak. And all the guests and family would begin joining in. Now, you may pick up on this, but I'm casting a little shade on this process. Like everything in the Middle East, in Middle Eastern Judaism, they had turned it into a ritual. They had systematized the entire thing. Rules, rules, laws, laws. There were rules for the whalers. Rules for how and where you could tear your clothes. Almost 40 rules, if you can believe it, just on how to tear your clothes. The process seemed to strip much of the authenticity and the genuine grief that the family would desire to express. And while there were genuine mourners in grief here, as we'll see, most of them are just putting on a show they were paid to do. None of this phases Jesus, not in the least. He has complete command and control and makes a most profound statement in verse 39. Verse 39. And entering in, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and crying? The child has not died, but is asleep. Well, I'm going to tell you straight away that I am not going to do justice to this text and the depth of meaning and application of what Jesus is saying. It is a sermon completely unto itself, but we're going to glean what we have time for. First part, Jesus said, why are you making a commotion and crying? Understand the tone here. 
This is rebuking. This would have come off as very rude. And we'll see in the next few verses the proof of that. But suffice to say that professional mourners, they know death. This is what they do. They're not mistaken. There is no doubt, not in anyone's mind, that Jairus' daughter has died. And this question by Jesus would land like a lead balloon. You just insulted and rebuked the mourners. It would have been sounded incredibly hurtful and insensitive to any family member that would have heard it. Just run that sentence over in your mind being said at a funeral. Think about it. Some guy shows up in the back who we don't even know. He comes in the back door and he says, hey, why is everyone crying? She's only sleeping. Can you imagine? We need to see this scene rightly if we're to follow and understood and understand what's about to come here. Jesus was not subtle. Specifically, Mark records Jesus as saying what? The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, what does Jesus mean here? This is one of those areas you want to go for a deep dive, but we're going to keep it as simple as we can. Is Jesus speaking metaphorically here? Sleep is often used metaphorically for death in the Bible. Is that what Jesus is doing here? No. The metaphorical usage for death is koimamai. But here in Mark, our word is katudo. Katudo. So Jesus is not speaking metaphorically. No, she has died. Which makes not using the metaphorical word comparing sleep to death so very telling. It tells us that something very unique is going on. And what this means put together is that this girl's death is real, but it's temporary. But it's temporary. There's no other parallel usage of these two words together in Scripture. It's unique, telling us something is about to change. This is not a normal death. It lacks finality for some reason. So what's happening here? Why the wordplay? If it's not metaphorical, what is it? Why is this death reading like some kind of temporary state? Because in this moment, with this word, Jesus has redefined death itself as temporary. Sleep is temporary. Because of me, because of what I will do, because of who I am, death is no more final than a night's sleep. Hallelujah! We can't miss that. Buried in this Greek word is a promise that we can hold on to for dear life. All of these great and precious promises that are ours in Christ. These mourners are about to close the door. They would close the casket. Jesus says, I make everything new. Death is temporary. Death is temporary. It is not the end. It is the beginning of real life. Anyone who has lost someone in Christ know that they have just begun. Anyone who has lost a precious one too young to have known Christ, they have just begun. Their passing is as temporary as sleep because Jesus is king. Jesus is alive. Death is his. He's conquered it and he can define its extent and its parameters however he wishes and it must obey. And he says the sting is gone. The fury and the fear are gone. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, Paul said. Far better to depart and be with Christ. But what is the response of an unbelieving world to the promises of Christ? If you think you've been laughed at or ridiculed, 
Back to our text, you'll see that they did it right to our Savior's face. And if they did it to him, they will do it to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Verse 40. And they began laughing at him. Stop there. A few things we need to see. One is the utter superficialness of this whole scene. What were these people doing just a few seconds ago? They were mourning, wailing, and weeping. Imagine someone in that true state of distress now laughing at somebody. And this is not just any laughter. This is a mocking laughter. It is derision. It is arrogance. It's meaning, you dummy. This was scorn. Katagaleo. Don't trifle with Jesus, though, when you're between him and what the Father has called him to do. And if you do, next part of our verse, but putting them out. See that? But putting them out. English fails us once again. This is the same word, tone, and tenor of Jesus when he cleared the temple. This is holy anger. Get out. He threw them out with force. But why put them out? Why put them out? What an opportunity to show these scoffers the power of Jesus, to throw it in their face a little. No. Jesus is putting a principle from the Sermon on the Mount into action. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. We encounter this in witnessing opportunities often. Some are so full of self-righteousness, dripping pride, hatred for God. I will leave them with the knowledge of hell. I will leave them with the bad news and I will not share the good news. I will not cast the precious pearl of the gospel before those who will only trample it underfoot. That's hard for some evangelicals to hear, but that's the pattern of scripture. That is the pattern throughout the gospels. Back to our text. You can almost hear what was the chaotic sound of wailers and moaners now quieted and muffled behind the door as silence and death meet those in the room. And watch in an instant, in an instant, Jesus was first the lion with the mockers, and he's now the lamb. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Where it says he took, this is a sense of almost collecting them. To mean he didn't just call them in here, say, hey, get in here. This means he gently and tenderly put his arms around them. Or he took them by the hand and he led them into the room where his daughter lay. You see the holy anger against unbelief and shallowness turned to instant love and compassion on a dime. Jesus is both. He is the lion of Judah who will pour out his wrath on mankind. And he is our suffering servant who is gentle among us, taking upon himself the sin of the world. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Here, Jesus is all compassion. We're going to see the incredible tenderness with which he treats them. Verse 41. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translates, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. There's so much beauty here. Saints, these are some of the very special areas where we need to learn to love our Savior more. And taking the child by the hand. Did he need to take her by the hand? 
No. Did he even need to come to this house? No. Did he need to touch the leper to heal him? No. Did he need to hold the hand of Peter's mother to heal her? No. Ours is the Savior that enters into our pain. He is in the trenches with us. We are not alone. And this isn't just any hand. This is the hand of a dead body. The moment he touched her, he himself became ritualistically unclean. Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote, he shared in her death in order to deliver her from it, end quote. And yet we're right back to the same truth of the woman with the blood. Did she make Jesus unclean when he touched her? No. Divinity washes the scarlet white as snow. The scarlet does not stain divinity. Nor was Jesus made unclean by touching this little girl. He is life and death bows at the touch. He said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, arise. Well, this word Talitha, this is in the Aramaic, which of course is what Jesus spoke. And the translators use little girl as it, it fits closer to the scene, but it misses an element of compassion and care and love that Jesus has here because it actually means little lamb. How precious is that? Little lamb. Talitha, little lamb, Talitha kum, I say to you, arise. One theologian joked that it was a good thing he said little girl or bodies would have been coming up all over the place. The creator has spoken. There is no battle. There's no conjuring. There's no building to crescendo. It's absolute power. Verse 42. And immediately the little girl stood up and began to walk. For she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. What word stands out to us there? Immediately. Used twice in one verse. This is a literary technique saying, hey, I'm really trying to show you something here. That there's no delay. The scourge of death is but sleep and it surrenders immediately. The little girl stood up and began to walk. For she was 12 years old. Why tell us this? Why not just say Jesus raised her from the dead? Next story. Why this detail? She walked around. She was 12 years old. I've said this many times from the pulpit. When Jesus saves, when he heals a life, he goes all the way. This girl was made 100%. When it says that she began to walk, the Greek here is giving us a very active image that she basically was walking around everywhere inside of that room, full of energy, full of life. You don't need a 10-day recovery period from death when Jesus was the doctor. It's complete, it's immediate, it's full. She's better than she has ever been, with the exception that we will see that she's hungry at the end. But our text says immediately they were completely astounded. Now, I don't know that even the Greek can capture what's going on in this room. Can you imagine the joy, the shock, the hugs, the amazement? It would have been combinations of shouting and being speechless at the same time. And what would you do? I believe we will see Jairus someday. And I look forward to asking him about this moment. What a roller coaster it's been for this father. Two days on the beach waiting for Jesus. A mobbing crowd. 
A delay that caused death, witnessing the miracle of a woman with blood, being angry and then amazed and then overwhelmed, and yet being filled with even more faith that he's just seen this miracle with the woman, only to get home to a wild scene, the mourners kicked out by Jesus and his little girl is now dancing in the room. That's quite a day. Finally, verse 43. Verse 43. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that some food should be given to her to eat. Well, we've covered in depth on previous messages the reason for Jesus commanding this silence. And if you want to know, perhaps just go back and listen to the whole series again. And he said that some food should be given to her to eat. What a savior. He doesn't miss a thing. And oh, how he loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we so often say, you have done all things well. Lord, we have been touched by this story, not only the woman with the issue of blood, but of Jairus, of his faith. Lord, how we can identify in so many ways with these characters. And Lord, their faith was not perfect. Lord, it was mixed with wrong understandings and wrong doctrine and all manner of things, Lord, as we sit in the same way here today. Lord, we, you are merciful to us, and we thank you for that. Lord, we ask that the story of Jairus and of the woman with blood would be seared into our hearts, that we would draw on the truths of it. Lord, when the time does not make sense, when your timeline does not make sense, when we can't understand what you're doing or why you're delaying, Lord, let us rest mightily in your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.